Welcome, everyone, to the First Presbyterian Church of New Bern podcast. My name is Paul Scott Chernitsky. I am one of your hosts. I am the videographer here at First Pres. I'm joined again this week uh, with our co-host, our pastor, Anna. I'm so glad to be here. I missed not podcasting last week. Anna, what's going on at the church this week? Well, there are lots of things happening. Last week, we dedicated our pledge card, so we got a great start on that. But if you missed um, bringing in your pledge, which is your financial commitment for 2022, um, we have plenty of pledge cards and packets. You just need to call the church. So it's not one of those things that if you missed last week, you've missed it forever. But also something exciting, the first announcement about when we decorate here at the church for Christmas, the hanging of the greens. So they're asking for people who might want to help with that. And this weekend, it is our elder retreat. We will be meeting tonight and tomorrow with the elders who currently lead the church, as well as those who will be added to the session next January. So we have time of training. And that's always pretty wonderful. It's faithful. We pray, we worship, we study. And so I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, great. We're recording this today. It's Friday, November 12th. This is before um, the sermon on Sunday. Uh, Last week when I recorded here with Maren, it was her first episode on the podcast. And her and I talked about the lectionary because I got all kinds of questions about when sermons are planned and how the lectionary works. And I know that every day, every week when I do the video at the beginning, I'm putting the 20th Sunday after Pentecost or the 21st. And sometimes I actually do it wrong and I export the whole video, which takes a half an hour. And then I upload the whole video to YouTube, which takes another half an hour. And then I realized I put the wrong Sunday after Pentecost in the beginning. So I have to go back and edit it. It's the life of a videographer. (laughs) But that got me thinking, what Sunday is it then today, or what Sunday was it yesterday? We are still in the Sundays after Pentecost, Um, but here's what's exciting. We're getting ready to change. This is the last regular Sunday. It's the last green Sunday of the year. Next week is Christ the King Sunday, and that's a white Sunday for our paraments, and then we move to purple and it's the beginning of a new church year. So, and we see these colors uh, in the stoles. Is that yes. the right word? That is like the scarf that I wear that's on my robe. Um, and I have all kinds of different ones. And so it's been green for a long time. Green is the color for ordinary time. So it's a time of growth, it's a time of spiritual development. White is what I'll be wearing next week for Christ the King. You have seasons like Christmas and Easter that are white. Also, sometimes we'll use white for communion or baptisms, but then purple. Purple, which is the color of Advent. It represents repentance and contemplation. So that's a wonderful way to start the new liturgical year with this season of repentance and contemplation. And so purple is on its way. I used to joke with Marin that she had like a Batman closet of stoles in her office, and she actually kind of does. We're here in her office right now, and she's got a lineup of stoles. Uh, what's your favorite color of stole, then? What's your favorite liturgical color? Oh, um, 
red. Red is my favorite liturgical color. And one of the reasons is that we don't get to use red very often. Red is the color for the Holy Spirit. And so we use red on Pentecost, which is when we celebrate the birthday of the church. It's when the Holy Spirit arrived and the disciples left the room and they went out and they proclaimed the good news. And we use red at ordinations and installations. But if I were Pope of the church, which of course we don't have in the Presbyterian church, nor should we. But if I were Pope, I would make more red holidays um, because I think Presbyterians, um, I think we would probably do us good to get a little more in touch with the Holy Spirit and being led by the Holy Spirit. It's certainly something I work on in my own spiritual life. These stoles often have patterns on them. Sometimes they have design on one side and the identical design on the other side. So when I'm behind the camera videoing Marin or Anna or when Eddie was here recording Eddie, uh, I didn't notice it at first, but sometimes some of my recordings, the stole would be not symmetrical. It would have slipped down one way and one cross would be higher than the other. And most people maybe don't notice, but there's probably people like me out there that finally do notice and it drives (laughs) us crazy. I'll tell you, when I was videographer in my previous church, there was a Sunday when I recorded the whole service. I got it all done, went and uploaded all of the video and discovered that I was several inches off on my stole and I had to go back and do the whole Thing. For the detail-oriented people, we have to... Well, and that's a difference with video. When you're in the sanctuary, that's not quite so noticeable. But I'll tell you, I've actually thought about purchasing some new stoles or having them made that are not symmetrical just for that reason, just because when it's video, it's a different perspective. You see it much closer than you do. I mean, that's a 21st century preacher preacher problem, and I use that word problem in quotes because it's not really a problem right there's a there was one uh, behind the scenes here there was one that eddie did and he had a stole that had different um designs all around it so it didn't match up so when you go into that you're thinking great i don't have to match up anything but little did i know till i got back and looked at the footage that the stole was sliding throughout (laughs) his entire a sermon, and if you scrub the video, you could do it on YouTube if you can find out which one it is. If you scrub the video, you can watch the entire stole move completely (laughs) around his neck to almost where it showed the bottom of it, but not quite. So it actually, if you paused at any moment, you wouldn't see a problem. But if you fast forward, you can see it go. (laughs) Uh, I will be paying attention to that for sure. Again, this is episode six already of the podcast. Uh, we've got um, people listening to it from the website, also from anchor.fm, from Google Podcast, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions for Anna or Marin or I, or any questions about the church, uh, go ahead and email those to Anna. We'd love to answer questions that you have and talk about topics that you want to hear about. And we're excited to do it each week. So let's have a great week. Let's go. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to this moment from different places. We arrive at this moment feeling different things. Some of us are tired. Some of us are worried. Some of us are ready. Wherever we are, whoever we are, 
Help us to set aside the things that distract us and embrace those things that welcome your presence into our hearts and into our lives. Help us to hear the word that you are speaking, that we might follow you. We ask it in your name. Amen. Our scripture reading for today comes from the Gospel of Mark, and we're reading from the 13th chapter. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? And what will the sign be of all of these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he. And they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. They must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What would you say if I told you that one day in the future, there would come a day when a hurricane would come perilously close to New Bern, that the winds would roar and the storm would rage, but that the greatest damage would not come from that storm, but from the rains that arrived and did not leave, the rains that would go not go away. So much rain that there would be floods and houses and streets would fill with water. And when that left, mold would take its place. That this rain, this storm would change the landscape of this town. Years later, there would still be people who had not been able to move back into their homes. That this storm, this event would change the real estate market. It would change the housing situation. Everything would be different. There would be loss but there would also be growth. There would be grief, but there would also be communities learning how to be church, one to another. If I said that to you, you might say to me, Anna, we know, that's already happened. It was Hurricane Florence, and you would be correct. That has already happened. Well, that's a good way to understand this passage from Mark based on a study of the tenses and the language and knowing when Mark was written, we know that this is not Jesus actually prophesying the destruction of the temple. When Mark wrote these words, after 70 CE, 70 of the Common Era, the temple had already been destroyed in an attempt to crush a revolution. And so Mark is writing these words not as a prediction, but as a way to help people process, as a way to help people understand what was happening in their world, a world in which their central symbol, the temple, with stones, we are told, up to 40 feet in length, had been toppled, defeated. That which they thought could not be destroyed had been destroyed. 
Mark's words here are not a prophecy. They are a reflection for people who are feeling lost, scared, off kilter, defeated. And what happens when we feel lost or scared or off kilter or defeated? Well, one of the things that we humans tend to do, which was true then as it is true now, is that we want to figure out why. We want to try and come up with answers for why something has happened. We want to reclaim a sense of control when the world has made it abundantly clear that we do not have that kind of control. I find that in those circumstances, often we are like Calvin in the comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes, who is certain after seeing fireflies out in his yard that he can make his own rear end light up, just like a firefly, if he can only figure out which muscles to flex. He is confident that he has that much control. He can do it if he can just figure out which muscles. It's hard releasing control. It's hard recognizing that control is an illusion. And that was no different in Jesus' time. No different in the years after Jesus when the Gospel of Mark was written. There are false prophets and teachers and others who are trying to explain what happened, trying to explain why the temple fell, trying to tell them that it is a sign that they can use that event to predict with some accuracy when Jesus will be our be, be right back. They are false teachers. One of the podcasts I've been listening to lately is asking the question, why are conspiracy theories so tempting, so alluring? Why do so many people believe them even when the evidence tells us they are not true? And they suggest that it is because we have that desire to feel like we are in control, that our minds will choose something explainable over accepting it is unexplainable, even if it's untrue. What I've loved coming to grips with in this passage from the 13th chapter of Mark is what Jesus does not tell his disciples. He does not tell them how to tell the false teachers from the real ones. There isn't a litmus test or a key or a code provided. Jesus tells us we have to live in the uncertainty, that there are false teachers, and that we need to get comfortable knowing that there are things we cannot control, because God's timeline is not ours to know. We cannot, he tells us, live our lives seeing signs where there are no signs, signals where there are no signals. Sometimes a tree is just a tree and a hurricane is just a tragedy. That's not all that this text that's not all that this text asks of us, of course. What else? One of the commentaries I read about this passage tells us that in spite of all that transpires, the church is invited to be hopeful. Wars, threats of wars, earthquakes, famines represent the worldly chaos in which the Markan community finds itself. The woes may be changed, but any church that remains faithful is bound to find itself also hopeful. To be faithful is also to be hopeful. For me, these words hit home. They hit home. They do not lead to despair. They lead to the anticipated dawn of God's new day. 
God's New Day, we hear here and in various other places throughout the gospel, is promised and assured. There are wonders we have not yet seen, love we have not shared. These words were powerful to me because I feel like we can look out and see the stones that have fallen in the last two years, the deaths that didn't need to be, the children and the lost time, the teachers and the healthcare workers who are heroes and yet still human, exhausted and overwhelmed with having to reinvent healthcare and education on a weekly basis. I feel like we can all look out and see and recognize the toll that has been taken on families, relationships that have had fissures exposed that could not be healed, families who have not been able to navigate conversations about health and current events. I know more than one family that has had to cut off communication one with another because it just became too toxic, too unhealthy to continue to do so. When we think about the church, I feel like there's a new article every week trying to address all of the changes that have happened, all of them crying out for a different kind of alarm. Will the congregation return? What's going to happen to our giving? Where are the children? Each one asking questions that cannot be faithfully answered with a good program or even the best of preachers, because that's not the way faith works. They, too, are trying to give us some illusion of a control where we do not have control. They want us to believe that if we do X, Y will be the result. When we know that's not true because this is not in our hands, it is in God's hands. And we are the disciples. We are not in control. Our lives given in service to God, the relationship with our Creator, that is what transforms us. That is what transforms the communities in which we live. That is the beginning point, not the right program, not the right structure, not the right person. It is the relationship with God that transforms everything else. We have to let go of the idea that if we just believe or act in a particular way, the temple will stay as it always was. That was never Jesus's promise. I'm 50 years old now, and the other day I thought back to what was going on when my parents were 50 years old. When my parents were 50, I was already in college, and I remember thinking that they knew what was going on. They had a clear handle on life and finances. They knew how to parent. They were in charge of their lives. But now that I'm 50 with a child about to go to college next year, I realize they didn't. They didn't know any more than I did. They were making it up as best they could along the way, and that sense of control was an illusion, just as it is for us parents now. This is, I believe, both the blessing and the curse of being in a church like First Presbyterian that has such a long, rich history. It can be tempting to think that the people of 1817 who founded this congregation knew that they were doing, that they had a clear vision and it was just a matter of following the right steps and that that happened generation after generation after generation. 
They had that certainty of knowing what they were called to accomplish and then accomplishing it. When in truth, I suspect they were like us, uncertain. They didn't have all of the answers. They were simply doing the best they could to be faithful and to be hopeful. I wonder how it might be different as if we re-envision the saints of our community, not as giants, but as real people with doubts and flaws and hopes to follow their Savior with vision that is not better or worse than the vision we have today. So I feel like Jesus, through Mark, is talking to us in this passage telling us that when we face complicated times, there isn't an answer. COVID does not have a silver lining. It isn't a part of God's plan and we need to grieve. But we also can be confident in having hope. We can still have hope. Hope, which a friend reminded me of the other day, is often a choice not something that comes to us naturally, but something that we choose, something that we choose each and every day to have hope with a fierce crying out of our hearts. Will we choose hope? Will we accept that we are neither in the past nor in the future, but we are living our lives here and now to be faithful in the best ways we can, that the birth pangs have begun, but have not yet been completed? Mark tells us what we already know, that we are living in an already and not yet time. How can we lean into that and not fight it? I believe one of the ways is by choosing hope. Choosing hope. I see hope because I see and know you. You are here. You who show up and are willing to speak of things that cannot be explained, nor can they be tallied on a spreadsheet as much as I love spreadsheets. Those are the real things of life, the relationships that will help us survive, the hope found in a house church that is willing to talk about how their lives have been transformed by prayer, the hope found in a group that gathers to process grief and knows that God meets them there, the hope found in you each and every day, week in and week out, you who are willing to give your lives to God. Yes. I choose hope, which does not make the world easy. Not even hope can wipe away hurt and challenge, but it can give you something to stand on, hang on to, and surround yourself with. That hope can be the everlasting arms that leads to the joy divine. Because the hope of God is not cotton candy. It is substantial. It is real. It sticks with us. As Jan Richardson has written, So may we know the hope that is not just for someday, but is for this day, here, now, in this moment that opens to us. Hope not made of wishes, but of substance. Hope made of sinew and muscle and bone. Hope that has breath and a beating heart. Hope that will not keep quiet and be polite. Hope that knows how to holler when it is called for. Hope that knows how to sing when there seems to be little cause. 
hope that raises us from the dead, not someday, but this day, every day, again and again and again and again. Friends, that's the hope of Jesus. Alleluia. Amen.
Friends, know that wherever you go, whatever you do, you are God's beloved children. So speak the good news. Be willing to deliberate the will of God. Reach out to the fearful, comfort the lonely. Sing, hope, pray, and laugh. And may God create in us bountiful souls. May Jesus Christ walk beside us. And may the Holy Spirit add a dance to our steps. Hallelujah. Amen.